Wildwood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Our senior pastor, Bruce Hess, is uh, with his wife, Janet, speaking at a family life marriage conference this weekend, and sometimes that takes them to faraway exotic locales. Um, This time, that's not the case unless you consider North Oklahoma City an exotic locale, but that's where they are right now. Uh, They're serving Christ there. You may know some people at the conference, and so as we uh, prepare to look into God's Word together today, uh, we're also going to be lifting them up in prayer. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we just uh, want to thank you for today. We want to thank you for your word and for the opportunity to gather in this place. And Father, I thank you that your word is powerful and active in this place and in North Oklahoma City with Bruce and Janet at the marriage conference. And we pray that you would bless their ministry. We pray that there would be marriages that would um, find some healing and some help for growth this weekend. And we pray that there will be others that might even come to know you for the very first time this weekend, and we pray that you would work through Bruce and Janet to that end. And Father, we pray for our time here today that you would guide us and that we would be dependent upon your Spirit to show us what you want us to see from your Word today. Father, I pray that you would be our teacher, and I pray that you would protect me from saying anything that you wouldn't want said. But if I do say something, Father, you wouldn't want said, I pray that it would quickly be forgotten. But Father, anything that we say that are your words and your truth today, I pray that we would long remember it and believe it and embrace it by faith, that we might be shaped more into the image of your Son. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I got to go to the OU football game yesterday. I don't know if if some of you were there, but uh, it was a great experience on a number of levels. Uh, One, we won. That was great. But also, this was the first game that I ever went to where I took my son. My son's two and a half years old. So Kimberly, myself, and and Joshua, our two-and-a-half-year-old, went to the game together. If you've never taken a a two-and-a-half-year-old to a football game, it's an experience, right? Um, We walked into the game, and it was a little overwhelming to him at first when he walked in. He actually started crying. He was so overwhelmed, which I thought was ironic because it was just the opposite of the experience I'd had the previous week with OU fans who had showed up to watch the Miami game and were happy at the beginning and crying at the end. He walked in crying, I guess, hung over from last week on the issue, but... um, it was great. I mean, it was really fun. And, and uh, as we got there, kind of my, my favorite moment of the day with him was we sat in the corner of the end zone right above where the, uh, the horses run out with the schooner. And uh, so we got, we we're getting ready to score. And we said, hey, Joshua, when we score, there's horses are going to pull this wagon around the, the, the end zone. So, you know, we score and here comes the schooner. And, and my son stands up in his chair and is waving vigorously going, hello, horses, hello, horses. <laughs> So anyway, it's, uh, you know, he's my son. I got all the time. I thought I'd tell you about him. But anyway, it, I, I actually, I, I tell you that story because I was just, um, as I was at the game yesterday and knowing what we were going to talk about today, I was, I was thinking about the nature of being at an, at an event like that, in a stadium like that. You know, when, when you're at the game, regardless of where you sit in the stadium, we were sitting in that corner above the horses. You might have been someplace else in the stadium, um, or you might have been at home watching on television, but Wherever you were, what was happening on the field was exactly the same. Players were playing no matter where you sat. Coaches were coaching no matter where you sat. Cheerleaders were cheering no matter where you sat. On the scoreboard, exciting things were flashing and highlights and all kinds of entertainment no matter where you sat. Regardless of where you were in the stadium, the same 
events were transpiring. But depending on where you were impacted what you saw occurring, right? Depending on where you were is what you saw. Where we were sitting, we had a great view of the horses that were going out and running around, but, but we didn't have such a good view of what was happening in the opposite end zone corner. You know, if you were sitting on the south end zone, you had a great view of the playing field, but you had no idea what was going on on the screen behind you. You probably heard it, but you couldn't see it. It was behind you. Your vantage point or your perspective greatly impacted what you saw was happening. Same game, different perspectives. And I say that today because we're going to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture this morning together. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15, three parables that Jesus tells, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And, and when you look at those three uh, very familiar parables, what we're going to do is we're going to look at kind of the overall meaning of that passage, but then we're also going to spend a little bit of time to move to some different seats in the stadium to see what it is that God might have us see by looking at the story through a, different, a little different lens. Uh, you know, for instance, there was a, a varied audience that heard this parable when Jesus first told it. Uh, in Luke 15, we get that audience for us. If you've got a Bible, open to Luke 15. And in chap uh, chapter 15, verse 1 of Luke, we get the setting or the audience is described for us. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1 says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him, listening to him. Uh, that's the idea that, that there, there was one group, there was one seat, one portion of the audience as Jesus spoke that were called sinners and tax collectors. These were the dregs of the spiritual universe. These were the people that nobody wanted to affiliate with. They were the ones that had the rough life, the rough living. They were part of the audience that gathered around Christ to hear this story. But they weren't the only part of the audience. It says, also, in verse 2, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. In other words, there was another vantage point, another audience, another segment of people that was hearing Jesus tell the same parable that were called, you know, Pharisees and scribes. Very different from the sinners and the tax collectors, these were the spiritual elite. These were those who were at the top of the game spiritually in Israel at the time. They were the leaders of the synagogues. And as Jesus tells this story, I believe that though it's the same story, it has a specific and intended perspective to each of those two audiences. And we're going to take a look at that today. But before we do that, uh, first of all, we need to read it. And second of all, we want to need to get oriented to uh, the, the main theme of what this, these parables are about. So let's read it. Uh, Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 3 now. Jesus told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost." 
In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything." But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go inside. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found." And so we have here three parables really designed to answer one question. That was, what was Jesus doing hanging out with them? And in response to that, Jesus gives uh, this story that highlights one central character in all three parables, really representing the Father and His desire and His seeking out of people. Uh, Look at each of the parables. Uh, The first one He tells is about a shepherd. This is a shepherd that has a hundred sheep, and this shepherd is with that flock, and he he looks at them, and he's counting one, two, three, four, five, seven, nine, nine, nine. wait a minute, I have a hundred, let me count again, nine, nine, wait, one of my sheep is missing. And so the shepherd doesn't just go, well, you know what, I've already got 99, it's no big deal to lose one. No, the shepherd says, I've got a hundred sheep, and one is missing. So as the shepherd left those other 99 sheep, probably in the care of another shepherd, and he went out seeking the sheep that was lost. And when he finds that sheep that is lost, he picks it up and he carries it back into fellowship with the rest of the sheep. And when he gets back to the flock, everyone who is a true friend 
of the shepherd celebrate with him. Why is that? Why are they celebrating? They're celebrating for the same reason why the shepherd went looking in the first place. Because that one sheep may not be valuable to you, and it may not be valuable to somebody else, but that one sheep is very valuable to the shepherd. The shepherd is counting because all hundred sheep are important to him. And when one is missing, he goes and finds it. And when he brings it back, all of his true friends celebrate with him because they realize that something so valuable to the shepherd has been brought back home. And they celebrate. That's the first of the story. Second story, the story of the lost coin. This is a story of a woman who has ten coins, probably her dowry, the only money she would have brought with her into their married life. The only money that she could say was, was truly hers. She had ten of them. These ten coins probably each represented a day's wage. She had one day's wage in that coin. And suddenly one of those coins is missing. Now, some might say, big deal, she still has nine others. But those who would say, big deal, she still has nine others, don't understand the woman. Because she had all ten coins. These were very important coins to her. And so what does she do? When she finds that one coin is gone, she lights a lamp because it's, it's obviously at night, it's an inconvenient time. She goes searching the house in order to find this coin. This would have been a common story uh, or common thing to occur in, in the ancient world. Poor people's homes, and if, if her dowry was only ten coins, this was not a rich family. Ten coins would have been that of a, of a, of a poor woman. And in ancient homes of, of poor people, the stone floors would have had many cracks in them. And it was not uncommon if a coin was dropped that it would, could fall through the cracks and make it difficult to find. So as Jesus is, is telling this story, uh, the people in the audience are going, well, yeah, if somebody lost that coin, they might go looking for it because that coin has value to her. And when she finds the coin, all of her true friends would celebrate with her because the thing that was so valuable to her has been found. And then the third story is that of the lost son. And in the story of the lost son, a, a father has a son that, that, that walks away from him. He says, I want my share of the estate, and he walks off, and he, he blows that in a foreign land, uh, and then he comes back. But when he comes back, the father is so rejoicing to see his son that he runs out to meet him, and he embraces him on the roadside. Why does he do that? He does that because the son is valuable to him, and he throws a party. And all who are true friends of the Father in the parable come to the party because they realize that that which was so valuable to the Father has been found. And in all three stories, we get a similar message, and that is that there is one who is seeking that which is valuable that was lost of theirs. They, they knew it was gone, and they went seeking for it. And when they find it, there is great rejoicing and celebration. And, and the key point that we can't miss in this is this, that the Father, our Heavenly Father God, like the shepherd who has lost a sheep, like the woman who has lost a coin, like the father who saw his prodigal run away, in each case... Our Heavenly Father is like them, seeking that which is valuable to Him and celebrating its return. Now the question is, what is it that is so valuable to our Heavenly Father 
that he would seek like a shepherd, like a woman, and like a father with a lost son. That which is so valuable to God is you and me. It's us. It's people. People are so valuable to God, and he desires intimate fellowship with people so much that when anyone is out of that fellowship, God is is seeking and searching to find them so they might be brought back into restoration. And when that happens, a great celebration occurs. God is seeking that which is lost. And you know what? That that kind of runs opposite of what we might want to think about the character of God at times. And we think about, you know, there's, there's one God and there's how many billion people in the world? Six billion people and one God. Surely, one of us not being in fellowship with him is not all that significant to a God who has six billion others. You know, I think about this in relation to, to my life. And, you know, at times I've gone to conferences um, as, as a pastor. You know, there might be, you know, a conference I went to recently, there were like 3,000 people at this conference. And as I got to this conference and there are 3,000 other pastors, you know, the morning session's great. The afternoon session, you know, you know what starts going through my head? Maybe I should just kind of look through the bookstore for a while, or maybe I should take a walk on the grounds, or, you know, I should kind of spiritualize it in my, my own head. You know, I, my cup is already full. I don't want to overload my brain or something like that. You know, I, I mean, and, and I don't need to go in there because they're not going to miss me. There's 3,000 other people in there, and so I can rationalize away why it's not significant for me to be in the room for that presentation because there's 3,000 other people who are going to be there, and I can't mean something to the person who's presenting when there's that many in attendance. Contrast that with this morning. This morning when I got ready for church, it never went through my brain to think, you know what, I just think I'm not going to come. Or I think I'm going to come maybe 45 minutes late today. You know, in fact, I came a couple hours early. Why would I do that on a day like that? Well, because in this setting, if I didn't step up here, you know, post-Wonderfall announcement, everybody would go, something's missing. We've got this far, now who's going to take us home? It's not that it's just me. I mean, it, it, it could be anybody. But I was designated this responsibility today. And because of that, I know that it's important for me to be here. I have a, I have a part or a role to play. When I'm at the conference one of 3,000, I think I'm insignificant. When I, I, I think I've got a, a role, then, then somehow I think it's important that I'm, I'm there. And all of us, whatever your business, whatever your scheduling, we all have issues like that. There's times that we don't think that we're very important. But there's times that we, we, we think... It's really important that I'm there. And I think sometimes when it comes to our relationship with God and our fellowship with Him, we fall into the trap of thinking, you know what, it's not that significant that I'm not in fellowship with God. It's just not that significant. It's not that significant to me. It's not that significant to Him. He's got six billion people in the world. We f- when we do that, we fail to grasp the fact that God is counting the sheep, saying one is missing. I must go seek them. Counting the coins, one is missing. I'm going to sweep the floor, scanning the horizon. I've got two sons and one of them is gone. I'm I'm, I'm searching for the son who is missing. See, the character of our God is one that values people. He values you. He values me. And because of that, he desires a relationship with us. And when that relationship is interrupted, when that fellowship is, is broken for any period of time, It hurts God, and it puts him in the mode of a seeker, seeking after that which is his that is valuable that is gone. Have you ever thought about that 
in relationship to God? Your relationship with God is not just something that means something to you. Your relationship with God is something that means something to Him. And when that fellowship is broken, He is seeking to restore it. That's the amazing grace and the amazing love of our God. And that's center stage in these parables. But with that in mind, let's now look at the parables that Jesus told from a couple of different seats in the stadium. Uh, The first seat that we need to look at this story from is that of the younger son, that of the tax collector and the sinner, the dregs of the spiritual universe. They were present when Jesus was telling this parable, verse 1 tells us. And they're listening to him him tell this parable. And, And what might they have been hearing? What might they have been responding to? Well, as he goes through the parable of the lost sheep, he goes, wow, is it, is it possible that God might be seeking me, one sinner who repents? Wow, that, that sounds like God is favorable towards my return. Uh, the parable of the lost coin, there's a celebration when that coin is found. Could it possibly be that God is, is, is looking for me? But then you get into the parable of the prodigal, the parable of the lost son. And that's when the person who's sitting in this chair, the tax collector in the center, that's when they are most interested. Because the story begins to unfold, and it describes a son who came to his father and said, Hey, Dad, I'm not so much interested in you as I'm interested in your stuff. Would you please give me my share of the inheritance right now so that I could do with it whatever I want to do with it. In in, in essence, he was telling his father, I wish you were already dead because I'd rather have stuff than you. So could you just go ahead and act like you're dead and give me my share of the inheritance so I could have it right now? Uh, In reality, as a younger son, he would have been entitled to one-third of his father's possessions. One-third of it. And these were possessions that weren't like just held in the bank. These were one-third of the possessions would have been things like cattle and sheep and, and land. And the father, in an amazing gesture of generosity, allows the son to take one-third of his land. He says, okay, these 30 sheep, these 50 cows, this third of our field, all of those are what are going to be yours after I die. And so you know what the son does? The son liquidates it. It says he brought those possessions to himself. He went into town and said, hey, I've got a third of my father's field that I'm selling to the highest bidder. I've got a bunch of of sheep and cattle for sale. Do you want it? And suddenly, that which which was his father's, when his father had it under control, this younger son has taken and liquidated it and sold it so that now one third of his father's land is inhabited by other farmers. One third of his father's livestock are now being tended by other shepherds or turned into meat that others are eating. It's just gone like that. And in its place comes a pile of wealth that that son takes with him, and he thinks it's an inexhaustible amount of money, and he takes it with him, and he goes off into a foreign country, and he blows it on all kinds of wild living. And as that story is being told, the son, the the, the people who are sitting right here, the, the tax collectors and the sinners, as they hear that being told, they say, that sounds like me. That's what I've done. 
I've said, I don't want you, Heavenly Father. I just want the stuff that this world has to offer. Let me liquidate as much stuff as I can to get as much out of this life as I possibly can. I'm really not all that interested in you. And they're leaning in going, wow, what a, what, what a story. What, where is this going? How is this going to connect with me? And then the story says that the person who was in this place, the younger son, finally comes to his senses. He realizes that he's hit the bottom of the barrel. For a Jew to work tending pigs, it doesn't get any worse than that. And he realizes he's at the bottom and he says, I'm going to go back to my father. Maybe my father would receive me, not as a son, that'd be beyond his wildest dreams, but as a servant. I mean, think of what he's doing. A third of his father's land is already gone. The public embarrassment that has happened as other farmers moved on to his father's land and his son ran off to the foreign country. He thinks, there's no way because of what I've done that he would accept me back as a son, but maybe he would accept me back as a servant. So he practices this speech, and he comes back, and, and, and the, all of the, of the tax collectors and the sinners are listening intently to the story. What's going to happen when he gets back? Is it possible that he could be a servant? Because that's the best that we could hope for, that God might accept us back on some kind of second-tier status in the kingdom of God. And yet, he, when he gets back to the location, and he says, this younger son came back to the father. Before the younger son ever even got his, his, his story out of his mouth, the father embraces him. The father runs to him. And the father said, take a robe, take a ring, take some shoes. Now, we, we hear those things, and we think, well, that's nice. He just got him some new, some new digs. But the, the reality is that it was far deeper than that. He says, take the best robe. The best robe in the house would have been the father's robe. The father put his clothing on the back of his younger son. He says, give him a ring. That, that ring would have been like giving him the family credit card. You've already blown through 30% of the money, but here's the rest. And no strings attached. You're, you're one of us again. And then the kicker is he says, get him some sandals. Get that boy some shoes. And we think, what is the significance of that? You know what? Slaves went barefoot, but sons wore shoes. When the younger son comes back, that presentation by the father is telling him, I'm accepting you back, not as a slave, but as a full-fledged son. And when they hear that, all of the tax collectors and sinners go, how can this possibly be? That as I have offended God, as I've walked away from Him, I've run as fast as I could in the opposite direction of Him, that God would actually receive me back as a son. And they fall to their knees just as the younger son in the story, and they praise God that they have the opportunity to restore fellowship with Him. Now, I, I tell you that today, and we walk through that aspect of the story, because I believe in, in this room right now, there's some younger sons who are here. Maybe the younger son syndrome is something that you have gone through in, in your history. Maybe at one point in time in your life, you found yourself running vigorously away from God, and you came to your senses and you came back to find that God was offering full restoration as a son full of all of the spiritual blessings. And, and if that's the case, as you hear this story, like the younger son, you're celebrating as well because you're remembering that moment in time when God accepted you into his family and God made you his child. 
It's also possible, though, that not just in your history, but in your time today, right now, that there are some younger sons who are here. Maybe you're here, somebody drug you here today, and you're in active rebellion away from God. You came here today because of a, of, of a friendship, a, a girl you wanted to date, a guy you wanted to date that invited you, whatever it might be. But you're here today for whatever reason, but you're right now in, in your heart or in a dead sprint away from the things of God. Maybe that's as someone who has, has never come into a relationship with God, never begun walking with Him, or it may be from someone who you had a season of life where you were walking with Him, but you find yourself right now very far from Him. Like the younger son in the parable, you said, God, I don't want everything that you've got for me. I don't want you. I just want the stuff of this world, and I'm going to run quickly in that direction. If that's the case for you today, then from this vantage point, from this perspective, see and hear what's being offered. Come to your senses. You don't have to live life as a fugitive on the run. You know, Richard Kimball lived the life of a fugitive, right, in the, in the fugitive movies. He was on the run away from the law. That's no way to live. He couldn't establish relationships. He couldn't get a job. He was just on the run. That's all he could do. And you know, when you're running away from God, you're missing out on so much of life that God wants to offer. And when you come to your senses and you come back, God does not welcome you back as a slave saying, great, I'm glad you're here. Now prove yourself to me. When you come back, he says, get that boy some shoes. Let him enjoy the spiritual blessings that I'm offering him in Christ. If you are the younger son today, come to your senses and come back. It's one of the vantage points of the parable. A second vantage point, though, comes from over here. And it comes from the older son. It comes from the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious elite. You know, and, and as they begin to hear Jesus describe the story that he's telling, at first they kind of agree with him. You know, a shepherd leaves and goes and searches for the sheep, they would have gone, well, yeah, the sheep's valuable. The woman searches for the coin, they would have gone, well, yeah, the coin is valuable. That's right. But then Jesus starts telling this story about the son, and they'd say, well, hold it right there. We're fine searching for sheep and for coins. Those are valuable to us, whatever. But when you start talking about sons that have embarrassed their father that way, you're in a whole nother ball game. As a matter of fact, as Jesus told this story, he was telling a story that was not new to the scribes and the Pharisees. The, the, the Jewish um, rabbis at their day actually told a story very similar to the story of the prodigal son. Everything in the story was the same in that there was a, a son that, that rebelled against uh, the father, uh, wanted all of his father's inheritance. He took that, he went away to the foreign land, and he blew it. And the son came back to the father to ask to be a servant. And, but in the, in the rabbi's version of the story, when the son comes back, the father says, no way, you have embarrassed me too much, now go away. And, and that's what the scribes, and that's what the Pharisees are wanting to hear. They're wanting to say, okay, here comes the part where Jesus is going to side with the, with the rabbis and say that this son should be sent away. But instead, it's way opposite of that. He receives him back, not as a servant, but as a son. And that makes them angry. Think about it this way. You know, in my wallet, let's say that 
this $30 represents all of the inheritance I would have to offer my son. Not far off, but let's say that. And, and uh, let's say that the younger son um, liquidates it. They get one-third. The older son gets two-thirds. Younger son gets the 10 bucks. The older son gets the 20 bucks. This represents all of what the father had. Younger son takes his 10 bucks and he gives it away to all the people in the village and he buys it and he squanders it on prostitutes and everything else. What happens to this money? Gone. When the younger son comes home and the father reinstitutes him and offers him things, what's left? Only the 20. Only that which the older son thought was his. And it makes him angry. Okay, you blew your third. Don't come back and take my two-thirds. That's what the older son was thinking. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing this math in their head. That's not fair. You know what they're forgetting, though? Whose stuff was it? It's the father's stuff. All 30 is the father's stuff. And if he chooses to give a third of it to the son that will squander and give even more of that to them, then, then what is that to you? It's the father's stuff, and he loves both sons. The thing that this son was missing, the older son, they were missing the father. They had the opportunity to have fellowship with him, and they were missing it. Notice how the story ends. Notice how the story ends. In, in, in in this, the way the story ends is that the, the older son is out of fellowship with the father. The father, the younger son, and all of those who were true friends of the father are celebrating the return of the younger son. But the older son is where? He's outside in the garden. He says, I'm not going in there to celebrate. That guy's spending my money. It's not fair. But where is the father? The father leaves the party and continues to search for that which is valuable to him. And the father comes alongside the older son and he says, come inside. Come inside. Why do we say that? We go through this because as we gather here today, I think that there are some older sons in our midst now, we hate that. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting twist that in modern evangelical culture, we would far rather be called a sinner and a tax collector than a Pharisee and a scribe, right? Uh, it's the exact opposite of the original audience. The original audience would have died to be here. They wouldn't want to be there. Today, we, we would die to be there. We don't want to be here. We want the crazy testimony and then coming back to God. We don't want to be called a religious person looking down our noses at the things of God. But the reality is that many of us find ourselves as an older son at some point in our lives. We find ourselves as someone who is around the things of God, but we've lost fellowship with the Father. We found ourselves in a spot where we want God to consult with us on how He doles out His riches. He owes that to us. It's our stuff. We're heirs. And when we find ourselves wanting the stuff of God more than wanting God Himself, we find ourselves at odds with Him. Is it possible that there are some older sons in our midst today lost, losing fellowship with the Father because we've become 
more of a cynic of sinners, more of a critic of, of others, then we become someone who fellowships with the Father. I think it's possible because I've sat in that chair. So the question that all of us need to ask is what do we do in response to this? We've seen a couple of vantage points of the same parable. What does God want us to do in response to this story? And, you know, I, I think that, that sometimes there's passages of Scripture that are they're very didactic and, and they lend themselves well to, you know, uh, doing kinds of responses, right? What are the three things I'm going to do in response to this? Other times there are passages of Scripture that I believe are designed just to flame our hearts up with love for the Father. And I think we've got one of those passages here. I think Jesus told this story for that reason. And so what I want to do is I want to end the service today by us just reflecting on this story, reflecting on the two vantage points, the older brother, the younger brother, wherever you find yourself in this. And I want you to reflect on that uh, while we listen to a song and see some images. Where do you fit in this story?